Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from Foster and Motley. In this podcast, they share their mission to help individuals, couples, and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience. Join this seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions. It's quite common to hear the phrase stocks and bonds in the same breath when the topic of investing comes up, but stocks often seem to get the bulk of attention. What about bonds? That is the question investment manager Tom Guidi and financial planner Luke Hale can help with in this episode of Foster and Motley's podcast about wealth and life. I'm Patrice Sikora, and welcome back, gentlemen. Good to see you again. Now, the first thing I learned when I was introduced to bonds was when the price goes up, the yield goes down and vice versa. But then I learned there's a heck of a lot more to these financial instruments. So let's start out with what are bonds? Thank you, Patrice. A bond is one of those first topics that you really learn about in finance classes in college or elsewhere. And it's really a very simple premise to start with, with a lot of later layers of complication. The premise is that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar at some point in the future. And the difference in value between a dollar today and at some point in the future can be expressed as an interest rate. So what a bond is, is if I own a bond, I am lending my money to somebody else, a government, a corporation, and I expect back my money plus interest over well, a defined period of time. And that's great, Tom, but does that interest change? The interest rate does change. We've seen it over the last 30, 40 years where interest rates have continued to fall. Recently, they've risen just a little bit, but we know it ebbs and flows. So the interest rate people demand changes, just like savings account interest rate changes or mortgage rates change, and they're all driven by the bond market. What investors are, are willing to demand or able to demand for investing their money. What about cash versus bonds? What, what makes one more attractive than the other? Mm -hmm. So cash, the cash we hold in our hand is one kind of cash. You can hold cash in a savings account and earn a little bit of interest or a checking account or in investment accounts, anything that's not invested gets swept into a cash account. Historically, it's paid interest. Recently, it's paid uh -huh. almost nothing. nothing. That might change again. So you can put money into that cash account and take it out any day you'd like. You get back essentially what you put into it plus the interest. So there's no real change in value on a day-to-day -day basis. With a bond, you're making an investment. And like all investments, it could go up in value, it could go down in value. But most of the return that you expect to receive over the life of that investment is likely going to be the interest rate you receive. But on any given day, might go up in value, might go down. So if you put $20,000 into a bond, 
and you try to sell it a couple weeks later, you might get $19,700 back. So they're really for different purposes. One is the day-to-day -day liquidity that you might need. And the other is an investment. All right. Seeing bonds as an investment, why would you want them in your portfolio? Well, there's the interest that they provide. That's certainly been a benefit over the long run. The other great part about bonds is what they're not. They're not a stock. Those two go together. You said stocks and bonds in your introduction. And the stocks and bonds go together really well because there's been what, six bear markets in the last 30 years. Five out of six of those bear markets for stocks, bonds actually went up in value. And that's because interest rates declined. So bond prices went up and that's a great insulator. So to the extent that you can't be an all stock investor, bonds is the next logical place to put your money because they work so well together. That give and take, that seesaw, is that usual between stocks and bonds? It's been usual recently. I would say in the last 30 years, that's certainly been true. Over long periods of time, it probably hasn't happened the, the exact same way. But we can pretty safely say that stocks and bonds usually don't have any correlation, meaning they don't move in lockstep. It's not a rule that every time stocks go down, bonds go up, but it's enough of a, a circumstance that you get some benefit there by owning both. Luke, when you're talking to people about uh, their portfolios, do they fully understand what bonds do? No, they don't have a clue. Uh, we have to introduce them to that concept. You know, when I think about a bond, the word bond, I think of two things. I think of James Bond. Uh, <laughs> and that's a very exciting movie character that I'm a big fan of. And bonds are, are bonds, the investment are almost the opposite of James Bonds. They're, they're kind of slow moving investments many times. But the other thing that I think of when I think of the word bond is a bond is a promise, usually between people. If you and I have a bond, we have a, some connection would imply a deep connection and a bond is a bond. The investment is a promise. So it's, you are lending your money to something, be it a government or a corporation, and they promise to pay you back a set amount of interest over time. And it's a contractual agreement. So when we introduce these concepts to clients, a lot of times we'll talk about the rate of return that you can expect to get on stock investments over time. And that's been pretty good. Eight to 10%, maybe 12%, depending on the kind of stock that you're investing in has been the longer term rate of return. But then we present the dark side of stocks, which Tom brought up. It's that fall from mm -hmm. uh, euphoria, you know, that, the story with the stock is perfect. Nothing can go wrong. It goes up and up and up until it doesn't. And then it goes down and down and down like something you've never seen. So we've seen, you know, stocks can lose all their value. 
if we invest in big conservative stocks, the chances of a full loss of value are, are pretty small. But the volatility, a stock could easily lose half its value, a quarter of its value based on different things happening in the stock market that really have nothing to do with that one stock. So your company that you invested in, the stock can be good, but you absorb the volatility of all stocks as a stock investor. So bonds are, at Tom's word was perfect, an insulator. So they don't move around as much. That bond between the lender um, and the borrower, it's a, it's a contract. So if I loan you $10,000, it's my expectation that at some point in time, I get my $10,000 back from you. And over that period of time, you will have paid me three, four, 5% for mm -hmm. that, that loan to you. That's what a bond is. It's a loan. It's a promise. So pro those kinds of promises are much, much less volatile than stocks and pair very nicely uh, with stocks because we as human beings can't afford to see our life savings shrink by 25% in the course of a few days or 50% in the course of a really severe uh, bear market. When you first bring in uh, new clients, you talk to them about their risk tolerance. Does the amount of bonds you suggest they have in their portfolio correlate to that? Yeah, it's probably our most important tool that we have in the toolbox to make the investing experience for somebody tolerable, the volatility aspect, and allow them to achieve their longer term rate of return that they need to make their individual personal financial goals work. So it is very much a complement to stocks and makes it makes it easier to own stocks, which over time should do better than bonds. How much of a portfolio should ideally be in bonds versus in stocks, either of you? Yeah, there's been some rules of thumb for that in the past. A hundred minus your age was a, kind of an old rule of thumb for that. We're finding that yeah, that's probably right for some people, but there's a lot more that goes into it other than your age. There's all your financial considerations. There's your risk tolerance. Are you needing an ongoing distribution in retirement? All these things feed into how much uh, stock that you should have. So there's no great rule of thumb. It's very individualized. Luke? That's been my experience as well. When we meet people and talk with them, it's very much about their individual investment experience that they've brought with them to us. Some part of it is their individual investment experience growing up with money in their household. So we uh, talk with them about that. You know, what's your money history? What's your experience with investments? Have, have, you, have you owned a bond? Have you owned a stock? And we, we understand where our clients are coming from and then present a portfolio that would accomplish their goals with the least amount of risk possible. We have some clients that are, are, are coming from a very aggressive standpoint and really they just want to make the most money that they can. 
and volatility matters very little to them because perhaps they're young and they won't need the money for a long, long time. We have other people that are uh, older, maybe have had bad investment experiences over their life that require a more conservative portfolio to be comfortable. And I think comfort is an important part of what we try to do for people. It's you have to make that investing experience comfortable. It can't be all about volatility and, oh my gosh, how much did I lose? It has to be about, it, it can't be so uncomfortable that it, that people change course in midstream. Can the type of stock that you have in your portfolio impact the amount of bonds? I'm talking about like dividend stocks. We think it can to some extent. Uh, you would, the dividend paying stocks that we tend to invest in tend to be more stable, but even the more stable stocks still have a volatility level that goes with them. What would you say to that, Tom? Yeah, I think stocks overall are going to be volatile investments. We say volatile is is a technical term in our industry, but it's a very descriptive term. It's mm-hmm. you know how much potential for loss, even in the short run, even if it's recovered eventually, do they have? So how much do they zig and zag over the years? The you can think of a you know a reasonable example is the stock market falls thirty percent. I mean, that's happened plenty of times. It's happened twice in the last 15 years, three times in the last 20, that it's been greater than 30. But just as an easy example, down 30%. So if you started out with $100,000, after that period, you have $70,000. And what does it take to get back to $100,000? It's not a 30% return. 30% of 70,000 is 21,000 are still short. It's 43% to get back to $100,000. Now, if you layer on top of that, somebody who is drawing from their portfolio, taking money out on an ongoing basis, and let's say they're taking $4,000 out a year, that's 70s, not 70, that's 70s, probably 66. Takes a lot to recover, 50% to recover. In the meantime, you're still drawing from the account. So that's a great picture of the volatility that stocks can have that really impairs the ability for an account to recover if you're drawing on the portfolio on an ongoing basis. Never mind, people might change their minds, sell off at the wrong time, you know, all the things that, you know, humans, <laughs> humans are apt to do. So true. All right, here we've been talking basically about what a bond is, how it balances a portfolio, but there are different types of bonds. And this is where, yes, we can get into the weeds. So we're going to do our best to give an overview, but what are the different types of bonds? Yeah, I think we can cut this a few different ways. There's lots of descriptive terms for different categories of bonds, and there's some that might fit in more than one category, and bonds are a pretty complex area. But just for simplicity's sake, we'll we'll talk about two first off. There's taxable bonds, and there's municipal bonds, and they're just defined by the type of income that is received. 
So taxable income, as, as it would imply, pays income that's taxable for the person that's receiving it. Mm -hmm. And municipal bonds or tax-free bonds pays income that you don't have to pay federal taxes on. You might have to pay state. It really just depends on the rules for your state. Okay. I did not realize there could be that difference with the state. Please continue. Okay. Well, that's kind of two ways to categorize bonds. Other categories would just depend on the credit quality of bonds. So there's government bonds, U.S. government bonds that are very secure. There's corporate bonds. There's a whole variety of corporate bonds. So you can have very high quality companies. The apples of the world or the Procter and Gambles of the world fall into that category. Or there can be high yield bonds. So there are more companies that borrow more money to fund their operations. So by borrowing more, they're a little bit riskier. They have to pay a higher interest rate. Those have been called high yield bonds. And that's a nice term. The not so nice term is junk bonds. <laughs> and there's, a, there's more of a degree of credit risk and investors get compensated for credit risk. So the compensation just means higher interest rates. I'd just like to note here, the federal government has never defaulted on any of its bonds, has it? Yeah, the federal government has this unique ability that I'd love to have. They can create money. So by being able to create money out of thin air, they're able to avoid default. So there is essentially long run, no default risk with a U.S. Treasury. Now, there is still risk. So what happens when they create money? They, they create, if there's more money out there, potentially there's inflation. And when you lend the federal government money or lend anybody money, if I lend the federal government money $100,000 today, 10 years from now, is it still worth $100,000? Can I still buy you know, a Tesla Model X for $100,000 or whatever your, your big ticket $100,000 item is? Maybe not. And Luke, you're sitting there with a smile on your face. Yeah, I, it's interesting to think about inflation and long-term bonds and lending. You know, in the environment that we're in right now with very low interest rates, it's hard to get excited about tying your money up for too long with bonds because... We are, uh, Tom, you can make an exact calculation here, but we're near a 30-year low for our interest rates. They've come down consistently since the early 80s. And it seems like, you know, they could stay this low. That's happened. It's happened in places like Japan. But they can't go much lower, we don't think. So at some point, they have to start going up you would think. And, and if the government is producing money and printing money and making this money out of thin air that Tom referred to, to pay off its debt, it very well could create some inflation. We're not seeing that maybe just yet. I think we're seeing it in the grocery stores and at the mm -hmm. gas pump and some places like that. But uh, there's still a an unemployment issue that we're working through as a result of COVID that is kind of keeping the calculation of inflation under control at this point.
but we very well could see some inflation and I would be hesitant to, to buy a long, long, long-term bond, maybe 10 or more years. What about bond funds? Bond funds are a neat way for an investor that doesn't maybe have enough money to invest in individual bonds to access the bond market. So they're, they're, they're a collection of bonds. So think of it as a shoebox. When I was a kid, I had baseball cards and under my bed, I had the shoebox full of baseball cards. And the shoebox is the mutual fund. It's the bond fund and the individual baseball cards are the individual bonds. So if any one bond goes bad, they go into default, the company or governmental entity or something like that that issues them can't repay them. If you if just one of your baseball cards gets messed up, it's not a problem. So it diversifies the risk of individual bond investment. So for a smaller investor, somebody just getting started, the bond fund is definitely the way to go. You get for every dollar you put in, you may buy a piece of a hundred bonds or a thousand bonds, depending on the bond fund that you're invested in. But for the investor that has more money, a larger portfolio, individual bonds many times can be the smarter investment. Bond funds have an expense ratio that you pay to the bond fund manager each year. And with an individual bond, that expense is eliminated. So it doesn't cost anything year to year to own a bond. All right. But individual bonds are not as liquid as a fund would be, right? That's right. It's, it's essentially a resale market for uh, once you buy an individual bond. If you want to sell it, you can. Their bond markets are liquid. But it is an individual bond. It's an individual promise. So you have to find somebody else that would like to take on that individual promise. Even That can be an institution. Your brokerage house could buy that bond from you if you wanted to buy it, and then they would resell it to somebody else, another customer. Or you could find an individual that wanted to buy the bond. They're not quite as liquid. It takes a little while to sell one. There's a for and there's a whole range of, of liquidity for a government bond. There's always a market for a government bond, but for a small town in Indiana that has a, a, a sewer district bond, it may take a little bit longer to find the right buyer for that. I want to jump back to the, the bond fund idea and exchange traded funds. Talk to me about that. So most exchange traded funds are built on an index and there's lots of indexes for stocks. You hear about them on the news, like uh, the S and P 500 or the Dow Jones industrial average. And those are built to represent the U S stock market, for example, but there's international stock market indexes and there's bond indexes and Bond indexes are a broad exposure to all the bonds that are out there. So an exchange-traded fund, what they will attempt to do is replicate an index by buying some of a lot of different bonds that looks a lot like the index. Mm. And so the returns will be index-like returns. 
So you get the average returns for the market, essentially. One of the difficulties with indexing and bonds versus indexing and stocks is that that methodology of buying all the bonds that are out there in the same proportion that they exist in the market. So based on the market capitalization or the size of the bond issues. For stocks, it works pretty well in a lot of cases. It means that, yeah, you're buying a lot more shares of Apple than you are for Procter & Gamble because Apple is a bigger company than Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble is a bigger company than, say, Kroger. For bonds, though, it means that you are buying the most bonds from those companies that are borrowing the most or those entities that are borrowing the most. And from a selection perspective of who would you like to lend your money to by buying bonds, we don't always want to lend money to those institutions that are borrowing the most money because that can actually be a sign of weakness in a lot of ways. And as a bond investor, would rather, given the choice of buying bonds or lending money to a financially strong institution that doesn't have to borrow much versus an institution that has to borrow a lot, you'd rather the former. All right. Which brings up again the question of default. We talked about the feds and, and printing money. If I have a bond and there's a default what happens? What's what's mm -hmm. what happens to me, and what's the process? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first off, as a diversified investor, you don't have to worry about defaults so much. Even if you're buying individual bonds, you're not buying one bond or five bonds. You're you're buying a larger collection. So if there's a single bond that's facing a bad credit scenario, a default, or anything else that might be going on. Within a diversified portfolio, it should be insulated from the actions or activities for any individual investment. Now, the process for a default is, okay, you're not getting interest payments anymore. There's a trustee essentially of the bond that takes action on your behalf. And eventually there's a bankruptcy case that resolves what's due. Now, it doesn't mean you lose all your money necessarily. There is some resolution and the recovery rates on bonds, you know, they vary. But if you lent out $100, it wouldn't be unheard of that you get $60, $70 back. Mm -hmm. okay. Other cases, it might be lower. It really just depends on each individual bond investment. And that's one of the key criteria that you have when you evaluate bonds. It's not so much find the highest level of interest. It's for bonds, it's a lot of times if things go wrong, then what? How much of my money should I expect to get back if things go wrong? And that's one of the, the big points to evaluate is, okay, this company, what assets do they hold? Or this entity, what assets do they hold? How am I going to get my money back? How is it going to work its way through a court case? Who else do they lend money to? What are the other interested parties? Luke earlier mentioned 
like a sewer district in the middle of Indiana is kind of his example. Well, are the people in that town going to stop flushing their toilets? <laughs> Probably, Probably not. not. <laughs> so we know that something like a sewer district, it's termed an essential service. We know that's a pretty good quality bond. Mostly from the fact that, yep, people still need running water. People still need sewage systems. These are all needed infrastructure. There's no easy way to replace it. So even if it's, there's a default, something's been mismanaged in that location, we're likely going to get most of our money back as things work out. I think it's important to, to talk about the difference between a stock and a bond in the event of a default. So if you've got a company that, that goes out of business, stock investors usually lose everything that they put in. Bond investors usually have some recovery against their what's called higher in the credit stack, which means that the, the bonds get paid out before any stock investor would get paid out. So a bond is a relatively safer investment from our legal system. Our legal system appoints a bond a higher priority within a bankruptcy uh, process than a stock investor. All right, fine. But if you're an individual, if you're an owner of an individual bond and you know you, you have this thing in your portfolio that's not paying interest anymore, it's one of the line items in your statement, there's some frustration there. It takes maybe a couple years to resolve itself before you get this payment. So there is some risk there. I, I don't want to minimize that, but it's mitigated by diversification. It is the recovery amount is a consideration or the potential for recovery is a consideration during the investment process. Well, gentlemen, this has been a really great discussion on bonds. I do appreciate it. I appreciate the time and, and the basics that you've shared with us. Tom Guidi and Luke Hale, as always, thank you. And be sure to subscribe to Foster and Motley's podcast about wealth and life that way you will know about the newest episode right away. Please also share and like this podcast. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.